Welcome to Holyrood Ungagged, the Kylie Minogue's tension of political podcasts. Season 6, Episode 5, I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State, and joining me this evening is Falkirk's finest, the maestro of mozzarella, the veggie supreme himself, it's Brian Stewart Finlay. Hello, hello. Hello, hello Brian, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Smashing. And introducing the third member of this evening's triumvirate, co-convener of SNP Socialists, co-host of Ungag's Talking Sense, and straight out of Milwaukee, it's Kat Carey. Yeah, you, hey Kat? there. <laughs> In Milwaukee. <laughs> oh, how is everybody? How was your September weekend? Nice. Relaxing for the most part. Very relaxing, yeah. Big oh. soup. My wife went to visit her brother down south and she took three of the four kids with her. And I grew up, like, it was just me and my mum. So she was a single parent and she always talked about how hard it is. And after a weekend with just one kid on my own, it was a doddle. She doesn't know what she was talking about. She should have tried raising four kids and then let's see her complain. I hope you listen to this, Maggie. But then we went out today, we visited some friends, and then the way home we decided to go for dinner, and Matthew, um, the two-year-old, exploded his nappy, mm-hmm. and we went to change him and realised we'd left the nappy bag at our friend's house. Oh, no. <gasps> no. It was just as all the food was arriving at the table as well. So we had to leave the three kids sitting at the table well, Caroline went and started just begging random families to see if any of them had a spare nappy. <laughs> and then he just... Matthew, I don't miss those days. Oh, God. I, I don't enjoy them myself. Every single anecdote of people having children has just reinforced my idea that I'm glad I don't have children. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting having two, but it's so calm because I have three sisters. So, like, just the difference in, you know having enough money to do a few clubs and and just being able to be like i have one hand for each of them it's it's very calm compared to what the insanity i grew up in yeah i always kind of describe parenthood as imagine somebody comes into your life and absolutely ruins it and you can't <laughs> help but love them for it it doesn't make there's no logic in parenthood at all no there's not anyway we love the little fuckers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, let's get ungagged. Okay, first topic on the agenda. Rishi Sunak has been accused of a very special combination of incompetence and cynicism over his major change of direction in climate policies. Former Greek finance minister. Yanis Varoufakis, I hope I get that right, told the BBC that the Prime Minister was destroying the UK's green credibility in a desperate bid to appeal to sections of the public. It follows a significant shift in net zero announced by Mr Sunak this week, including delaying the ban on new petrol cars by five years, a nine-year delay in the ban on new fossil fuel heating for off-the-grid homes, and a ban on the sale of new gas boilers remains and there will be new exceptions put in for poorer households. So, Brian, how would you like to go first? Thoughts? Feelings? Yeah, I I watched this live, (laughs) and I was just like, "Mm." it's it's every time Rishi Sunak has to present something, 
and he's trying to convince people that he's the right person and you know this is this is really important and this is what we need to do and it's like somebody from cbb is trying to explain you know why we should just delay all this apparent great stuff that we've already been doing because we're so far ahead of our net zero targets so we'll just delay all this really important stuff because that's pragmatic it's just you know it's really really frustrating um the the delay on um moving away from combustible engine cars right so moving to to, ele to electric vehicles in itself is you know it's it's it was sort of pitched as being like, you know, this is going to exclude people from buying cars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I'm sorry, but do you know any people that buy brand new cars? Like, like you know, straight off the mat. So, you know, trying to pitch this as for hardworking families, I think is, is a bit of a stretch. Um, And, and this um target, you know, the businesses were already working towards it, right? The most important thing about this announcement is that Rishi Shunak managed to piss off the Green Party and car manufacturers in one go. That's impressive. Right? It's really, really impressive. I was so, going, I was going to use that line as well. Oh, it's just it's so funny because it was like it was literally on my feed, right? And it was like the statement from Ford and then you know from the Green Party underneath that. And I thought that's really, really impressive. Um <clears throat> so there's that. So the car thing, I don't I don't understand what that's about, but it's really sort of pitching towards, oh, you know, we need to do this and blah, 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 and it's, you know, try to be pragmatic and blah, all this kind of crap. Um, the most frustrating thing for me was the the sort of dismissal of the insulation aspect of things, because really that's something that we should have been doing really for over the last 20 years uh, is to uh, insulate homes to reduce bills for everybody, because we now see over the past two years how much you know, fossil fuels have gone up in price and how much our energy bills have been impacted. And they've actually gone ahead and, and basically disbanded um a, a particular group that was formed to roll out insulation to uh across the UK. So that's you know that was a really big one. And then there was just these weird sort of things that they're banning and, and stopping that were never policies in the first place, meat tax, having seven bins, like all the like basically Pat a uh, Airport passenger yeah, I, duty as well was another one, wasn't it? That's never I been think, a policy. I, I, in, I think he, he claimed he claimed that he was going to stop the compulsory car sharing. Yeah, yeah. Which just I, I can't even figure out how would that even work. The compulsory car sharing, so you can't drive in a car yourself. So yeah, how do you get to work? Do you, does everybody just have to work with a partner? So you're driving back and forward to the same place. Or do you have to like say, can you get in the car with me? Because I need to drive to work, but we can't drive what? on my own. You need to cover me. And then sit in the car park until I finish my shift because you can't drive home yourself. It's just it's so so bizarre and weird. But you know, this whole argument aside that's about how terrible this is, and it is really, really terrible, you know. The UK is is okay, it might be doing well in comparison to other countries, but that doesn't mean you just stop doing what what we are doing that's good so far. Um, but the biggest thing that frustrates me about all this debate, because this has been covered in, in you know, every political you know, discourse, podcasts, BBC coverage, everything, you know, the, the, there's all this coverage, but nobody has mentioned public transport. And that, to me, is just, this is where climate and net zero is. It's like EVs are, are going to save the day and technology is going to save the day. And it's like, you know, there's three key things that we need to reduce in terms of emissions, right? Transport. So that's, you know, touching on the EVs um, energy production. Right. Th those are the two key things. Right. And then, you know, how we utilize energy in general. Right. 
but it just seems to be we're, we're kind of focusing on the sort of individualism aspect of it when actually we should be talking collectively um you know even the, the scottish government you know i'm very critical of but it's things like you know reducing the peak fares on scotrail so you know to make using trains more effective but there's so much more we could do like you know taking buses back into public ownership integrating public transport so people don't want to use their cars so you know it just this whole thing is just find really, really exhausting and frustrating, but it's not surprising. And it's just Rishi Sunak trying to set up um, his arguments for the next general election. And I hope he loses. So there we go. Yeah. Uh, the, the forcible car share. I, don't, I remember growing up, it, it was on sitcoms and maybe some, some movies that like in America, you have the, the, the car share lane, like it's called the hub lane where people, it was always a joke that somebody would have a blow-up doll in the car with them so that they could be in there without being pulled over. It just reminded me of that when you said forcible car shares. Um, yeah, that, that that infographic was ridiculous. That was out on social media. Um, I've, I've read this Financial Times analysis saying, like, by disincentivizing and attempting to slow these shifts, people will end up paying more for longer. So it is just a desperate grab for old car loving grandpas centrist grandpas more than centrist dads i guess um i i'm really angry that labor lost that by-election because of i saw something on social media because of a couple hundred votes now all all the green things but i think you nailed it brian because electric cars aren't the answer and and actually those are cheaper to operate over time um and rolling back on net zero targets is not going to stop energy companies investing in sustainable energy because that is the future, right? It it gives them a little bit of uncertainty. So he's pissed off big, big energy companies, but it does take the conversation away from infrastructure, which we really need badly. And that's that's what I think is getting hit hardest. I think it's a desperate grab at a populist take that to save a few votes they're going to lose horribly anyways like but and maybe it's to shift labor more to the center or to the right mm -hmm. now because i don't think labor's even really a center center party anymore i think it's no. fairly center right um but when you're behind australia and the united states in your climate plans you know something's gone horribly horribly wrong um and yeah it's just I also saw a piece written or, or I listened to some commentary about how, you know, Rishi Sunak was incredibly privileged. Then he married a billionaire. Right. And he's was one of those people that's like, I want that. I want that job. Right. He wanted to be prime minister and he's really bad at it. Right. He just keeps showing us again and again and again how bad he is at doing things like the uber rich aren't designed for doing anything but being for show. That's what the mm -hmm. monarchy wants us to believe. Right. Um so he's just really bad at it. And I can't wait until he's not prime minister, even though that means somebody almost as disappointing will be prime minister. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's impossible to see the Tories pulling out a, a win in the next election. And I mean, surely he must realise that as well deep down. So you would think he would maybe just want to go out with a wee bit of dignity in terms of this, in, instead of going for this sort of you know, let's like burn, literally almost burn the place down for for the faint hope that they might cling on to power for another few years. And it kind of reminded me of 
and this is going back about 1997, when John Major uh, was a similar situation facing like an almost certain defeat. And the somebody came in with an advert to release attacking Tony Blair and the Labour Party, implying that they'd making they were making some Faustian deal and that they were lying about uh, other sort of new Labour policies. And really, they were just going to go back to traditional Labour values. Unfortunately, it wasn't true. Um, and John Major, I mean, it's quite vanilla, but like more modern standards and how brutal politics has got since then. But he decided not to release that because he just felt it, it probably wouldn't make a difference and it would be remembered as like as stooping so low in the last days of his sort of premiership. And I can't imagine, well, we know Sunak when he do that, but I can't imagine many politicians now doing that. And it, again, I keep harping back to, you know, how debased our politics have became in the last few decades. Um we're literally at a stage where a Prime Minister will say and do virtually anything if he thinks it will get more votes. I mean, this is potentially endangering the species, the, the entire human civilization, because he wants to keep a job. It's pathetic. It's, I think it is desperation stage. And what I think what the, the Tories sort of aim here is, is perhaps to deny a majority of of. The Labour Party, or or something, you know that that's really kind of clutching at straws that how bad things are because the polls, again, they fluctuate. But the Tories are like you know floating around in the early twenties, you know, which is it's not looking good for them, and they they're just trying to think, well, can we harvest some of the votes from the likes of Reform, who have pitched this idea of you know a referendum on net zero, they try to tap into to these people, and um, to perhaps try and bolster their vote in some way but it's 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 just it's desperate desperate stuff but Kat you picked up on as well that, that basically by them doing this it just allows Labour to be more shit <laughs> so you know Labour has said oh yeah we'll get rid of petrol cars by by you know 2030 and we're like and, and everything else that's really substantial well, we'll have to wait and see what the state of the country's like at the time. You know, we can't we can't pledge to to give people insulated homes. We don't know how bad the situation's going to be, and you're like, <sighs> so actually, it's just it's really it's really damaging. You know, even even if the Tories get absolutely tanked at the next general election, which I think they're going to be, and which I hope that they're going to be, it just kind of lets Labour off the hook a little bit more, um, and making these kind of radical changes that need to happen, and just give people warm homes like. And, yeah, and it's the, the basics. And the really depressing thing as well, if there is any indication that this sort of rhetoric and these kind of ludicrous policies are getting some kind of purchase, Labour or Russia press release it to say that they're going to do the same thing. You know, they're utterly spineless. You know, as soon as I announced he was going to start eating babies and there was a focus group said that, well, actually, there's some support out there for eating babies. Starmer would be tucking into one in camera within a day. It's, That's maybe yeah. a bit much. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's it's just a really, really disappointing and depressing state of affairs. And, you know, kind of latching on to, to this story a little bit with the rumours around HS2 as well, which, I mean, I'm no supporter of HS2 in general. I think it, it was... There's so so much wrong with it, right? But if you're going to decide you're going to go ahead and do something, and you're going to spend, you know, excessive of a hundred billion, and you're going to end up with a fast line between, not even central London, West London, and Birmingham, 
mm, you know, it's probably not really going to work out. So, you know, people, you know, who, who were promised to the, the Northern Powerhouse Rail, to Manchester, to Leeds, and, and actually getting to central London is, it's just this country, like, the UK just cannot do big infrastructure plans because, yeah, everything's too expensive. And you're like, okay, great. So we'll just literally get rid of 100 billion and pr present this crap, like, fast tube line from one city to another. And and I, you know, like, I used to live on the line, which used to go from between Houston and Birmingham New Street. There's trains, five trains an hour. It takes about an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes to get from Houston to Birmingham. So That's now there's going to be this HS2 built 100 billion, 100 billion pound line that is, Sa saves 20 need. minutes literally saves about 20 minutes it's just I, I honestly i just can't can't with with this and yeah we do need infrastructure we do need public transport to be better but can we just like plan it better and can we just follow it through when if you know so if we decide we're going to do something don't just start hacking bits off it to make it completely useless it's also because when they decide to do these big infrastructure things they do it with half a mind on, you know, how can how can how can we all make money off this at the same time? It's not about how can we build and deliver this, you know, in a reasonable budget and deliver it well. It's like right, how much can we skim off and how who who can who can we get to set up a shell company that will suddenly be able to do all this work, even though they've literally set the company up yesterday and have zero assets or um, ability to do so. It's it's just again, it just the whole country is so corrupt. It's not mm -hmm. real. It's... And also, if you've got a company like a nice shell company, maybe called I don't know HS Two L Limited, for example, they can be blamed when things don't go well. When actually, it's the government. It's the government and all the contractors that they've given work out to just cannot organize a basic new infrastructure project is just so so depressing and you know specific to scotland there's there is campaigns out there like northeast rail and things like that that these are the types of things that we should be investing in right because we need good public transport publicly owned public transport so people don't have to rely on diesel and petrol cars or even ev cars which by the way still use power <laughs> and a lot of electricity still comes from fossil fuels so you know it's just about if we shift people rather than two people because it has to be two people in a car if there's one or two people in a car that are traveling somewhere and you have a big bigger thing with you know between 10 and 50 people on it it saves power right it just makes more sense so by effectively making public transport more integrated accessible and working towards having free public transport People stop using their cars because it doesn't make sense. And guess what? Emissions go down. Just me, honestly. It's so frustrating. Yeah, because there's loads of people that only own a car because they have to. You know, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, if they work shifts, you know, they literally need to own some kind of car to get to and from work. Yeah. Um, because public transport doesn't start early enough or isn't reliable enough. Or it costs so much. When I lived in Dundee, I, I actually bought a second-hand car to drive down to Glasgow to park because it cost me nearly 40 quid return for a peak time um, return. You know, it's just, it's crazy. It's even from, from Falkirk and, and you know, getting through to maybe South Glasgow to park and get the train before the peak before the peak tickets change, it's, it's, it's like three, four times as much you know, for, for, for me to take the train rather than drive somewhere to park and then use a local train. It's just, 
honestly. Also, I don't know how successful this has got to be for Sunak as well, because one of the people that he, he pissed off with this is uh, a billionaire that apparently was the biggest donator to the Tory party before the last election. He's like, I don't really know why he's so furious, because, you know, I'm sure it's not because he's a tree-hugging lefty, uh, but he he's now saying that he will not back the Tories at the next election be, be over this. Um, so how that really helps win them votes, I don't know, if they're then losing um, funding over it. I would say that this chap might have invested money in EV companies, for example. Possibly. I think there will be an individual reason as to why this person's not happy about these changes. I can't really see it being based on the green credentials. I don't know the person. I'm just making assumptions, but, you know. I mean, it does inject uncertainty into the market. So, you know, it, it makes sense that a billionaire would not be happy when the Financial Times is writing scathing reviews of it. You know, I mean, the Financial Times is, is a good news outlet that has very accurate takes, but they will spell it out. This is good for the markets, bad. And um, yeah, like you said, I, I think, is this Rishi Sunak's Liz Truss moment? Like, I don't know if it'll take him down in the same way, but I feel like it's that big of a misstep. It kind of feels like he's, he's possibly his last big sort of roll of the dice. And, you know, it was only, it wasn't that long ago. So, you know, time will tell, but it does not feel as if it's been the, the master stroke that he, Obviously, thought it might be. Um, it'll be. It's going to be a long year in the next election. That's all I can say. It's honestly, the sooner the better. It's just. But I don't see them painful. calling for one no. before they absolutely have to. No. So we could be maybe talking, that's it. We could be talking January twenty twenty five. I thought there weren't supposed to be winter elections in, on this island. Well, it never really happened until. Um, was it 2019 that was in December? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd need to check, but certainly I don't remember one in my lifetime. They were always in May, first week in May, every time. Mm -hmm. In fact, no, there was one in June because it's foot and mouth suddenly. There was a massive foot and, foot and mouth outbreak and they delayed it. And, uh, I think that was 2001 or something like that. 2017 was June as well, wasn't it? When Theresa May called that election. So, but yeah, like a winter election is never fun for anybody. Um, but I think they'll hang on and hang on and hang on until literally they are mandated to 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 hold an election, and that's just you know, however long it takes, it's just far too long. Just call it. Maybe maybe Rishi one one last Christmas at Checkers before he goes. Well, lucky for us. And who can grudge him that? Everyone. <laughs> Let's move on. The Northern Ireland Troubles Legacy and Reconciliation Act received royal assent last week, despite widespread opposition from political parties, victim organisations in Northern Ireland and the Irish government. The most controversial aspects of the law include a limited form of immunity for prosecution for troubles-related offences to those who cooperate with the new Independent Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. It will also halt future civil cases and inquests. Grania Tegger of... Amnesty International UK said it was a dark day for justice and that the law only absolves those responsible for conflict-related abuses and shamefully all under the guise of reconciliation. Yeah. Well, similar to the last item, um, I can see 
future Tory written history books going, look at look at what this Tory government did. They got the DUP and Sinn Féin to unite in their opposition to this bill. Um, it looks like nobody involved had a hand in writing it and nobody uh, nobody involved in the bill had a hand in the troubles and the people, anyone who was involved in any part of the troubles hate this bill. Um, that's that's my major takeaway from it. And what is it? Put Draw a line underneath it and put it behind us. Let's let's say that this is not a thing anymore and there's no repercussions. And, you know, I know enough people from Northern Ireland to know that that is still a hangover and you know, I'm alive and conscious, so I know that sectarianism isn't over yet, <laughs> you know, so it just, it's, this is why super majorities are a bad thing. I, I don't like super majorities, even if that's my side that's on, on the top, because stupid, mindless things like this get passed. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, that's a perfect segue of what I was going to say is that this is just it just shows that, you know, if, if you, you give a, ultimately a blank check to any government, they can pass legislation that nobody likes. Well, apart from that particular party. Right. Um, I think when something as significant as as the troubles and, and the history of the British Isles in general, it's like three and a half thousand people estimated to have died uh, in the troubles. Um, and this is still really recent history, um, you know, and it, this sort of symbolic and, and, and legislative drawing a line under something like that so we can, quote unquote, move on, I, I just think is extremely unhelpful. I think trying to deny people access to justice is not a good thing. I think it's, you know, there's there's already enough barriers um, for people to access justice in general. Um, and I think, you know, having, uh, uh, you know, this particular type of legislation is targeting a particular issue. And I don't believe that that should be the case. I'm trying to go into detail about this, but the whole thing is just wrong. <laughs> so it's like, you know, everything I just think, you know, again, just reading this through is like, I mean, who genuinely thought this was a good idea, right? So the Tories are like, well, we just want to move on. And, you know, this is a very London-centric view or, or Westminster-centric view of saying, this we need to move on from, so we're going to pass this legislation. And, you know, this whole executive and this whole, you know, uh, country within the United Kingdom, uh, you know, the 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 uh, the Republic and, and, and the Irish governments, well, you, you can just, you know, just get on with it. And this is what we say and this goes. And it really doesn't think like the the Westminster government has learned anything from anything that's happened on the British Isles, whether it be any kind of form of conflict or or legislative disputes. You know, they just continue to make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, and with the 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 context of Brexit as well, I believe that there's a, a two or three sections that actually breaches of the the Irish Protocol as well. Um. So, I mean, this Tory government, do they just not read their own legislation before they decide to, to, to start, you know, putting bills like this through? Um, and it just shows the Tories for what they are. It's just ideologues trying to, you know, do what they think is right, not consulting with anyone, trying to pass things through in the efforts of, of you know, protecting unionism. And basically, they're just doing an absolutely terrible job at it. So... You know, that this in itself, you know, I'm being lighthearted about it, but it is really, really serious. And it's, it is, we just, can, we, can people just listen 
to the people that laws impact on, right? That's as simple as that. Don't deny it. That's not very sorry of you, Brian. Well, I'm terribly sorry. (laughs) But, you know, it's basically listen to the people that are impacted by these laws and stop trying to, essentially, they love to go on about when people are silenced, right? (laughs) Here's a really good example of it, you know, using legislative frameworks. Um, So, you know, it's the whole thing is just absolutely terrible. Uh, You know, and but one of the most significant things about this, and, and we mentioned it before we started recording, is this seems to be around for a long, long time, right? So the, the, the sort of consultation periods, the debates, the discussions, but it only appears now and again, right? Particularly if there's maybe a, a court case linked with the troubles that seems to be flagged up, but there's not been a lot of mainstream coverage about this. Um, certainly in, 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 in the, the media that, that, that I'm exposed to, but I'm sure there will be, uh, in the north of Ireland and in Ireland, there'll be a lot of critical discussions about this, but that's something that we haven't necessarily been exposed to, which, again, might tell you something else. Yeah, well, we there's seen a... I'm sorry, there's 11 oh, pending court cases. There's 11 legal challenges, so yes, maybe that's we right, yeah. mm-hmm. but Sorry I, to interrupt you, David. I, I read 16. Um, Damn. Yeah, I've I just got to say, like, you were, when you said, like, sort of Westminster-centric, you know, you're absolutely right, because... To them, this is a nuisance. They want to draw a line on it and just move on because mm-hmm. it's a pain in the arse to them every time one of these court cases comes up. They know it rails up a certain section of their support that they'd rather not always be railed up. And, you know, they think, right, let's just pass this. We can draw a line around it and move on. We'll see people in Northern Ireland, see people who have had, like, parents, siblings, children murdered, they're not going to just move on because you've decided to pass this law. You know, what they need is closure. What they need to find out the circumstances of their loved one's deaths and see justice done. And you're just deprived them of that. How is that going to allow anybody to move on? And I have so little faith in this, like, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember, the, look for the name of it again, the, sort of, the Commission for Reconciliation and Information Recovery. You know, it's kind of based on the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, which get a very good sort of rap, you know, when people talk about it as if it's this great groundbreaking thing. But they were controversial as well. You know, in the aftermath of it, you had, you know, you know, policemen had literally tortured and murdered their, their way through their careers. Now suddenly went to these things, may, may have culpid, and then suddenly were like absolved. And going on like chat shows with with this kind of notoriety, um, having committed horrific crimes and literally getting away with murder, and I really fear in the aftermath of this, you might see some ex servicemen turning up on like right wing podcasts and, and pretty much bragging about what they've done, knowing that there's no comeback now, knowing that they're in the clear, and how's that going to help them to move on? You know how how's people going to move on and heal? When, you know, there's, you know, clips in social media, you know, folk laughing about what they've done and what they've got away with. Mm, and You know, so this could really backfire hugely at a time when the peace process is already sort of disrupted by Brexit. Mm, that's, yeah, exactly. It's really, it's, I mean, obviously the, the, the relations between the UK state, Northern Ireland and the Irish government is is constantly and under different pressures for different reasons and obviously sectarianism and what you were saying there as well that you know you could get people literally bragging about what they've done and and, and you can't do anything about it it just 
it's just so it's ridiculous. I did lose my train of thought there. Apologies. Well, I I read a bit that so abolish the House of Lords disclaimer. Right before this, the House of Lords did try to amend it back to say no, you shouldn't just offer blanket future immunity for people who give information. And then the Commons, with their supermajority, passed it. You know, they reamended the bill and passed it anyways. Um, it's just, I don't know if you get more unionist than the DUP, you know, but even they're against it. Um, I I feel like. Um, this is to protect the the British services, like the armed services and the people who did horrific things in the services. Um, I know that the mood about supporting veterans is a lot different in this country. I think the troubles are probably a part of that and a big part of that. Sorry. Uh, but I also think that this is not going to heal anything in the public consciousness. I just, I feel like, I think Boris Johnson introduced this. I think these are people worried about their personal legacies. They want to say they drew a line. I introduced this bill or I passed this without really caring about the people or the actual impact, which is the most Tory thing ever, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you were really trying to, you know, create a closure to this kind of like civil conflict, you wouldn't be ignoring all of the sort of groups involved, you know, you'd have to bring them aboard. If you could get to a place where victims groups, political parties of all kind of sides were all kind of collectively agreeing to move forward and, you know, let go of uh, everything that's happened, that would maybe work. But you can't just force it in people. It's, it's ludicrous. I'd be really interested to see, because uh, I haven't actually read any of what Labour's response to this is. Um, I know that Labour doesn't like to commit anything when they don't know the financial situation and anything, but it's um, you think this would be something that they would want to repeal, right? And I know that Labour have said on many occasions they don't like to repeal things. You know, like when they were in power for 13 years and didn't repeal any of the anti-trade union bills that Thatcher put through. Um, but, you know, things like this, this is where Labour should be, you know, morally, um, positioning themselves differently from the Tories, but I haven't actually seen much coverage of what Labour has said on this particular issue. And I would absolutely want to see Labour repeal this um, and look at other ways of, you know, metaphorically drawing a line under it to help to, to heal, basically to heal and, and take and decentralise away from the, the power that at Westminster, but we know Labour's not really a huge fan of that either. So, you know, we'll see. I would say the odds in Labour taking a principled stand in this are about like a snowball's chance in hell. Yeah, I'm trying to be positive. Sorry, I, I kind of step on that whenever MD tries to be positive. Yeah. it's it's That's part of your charm, David. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just glad, to, just glad to know I've got some charm. <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures. From snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles, Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one -one group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, 
and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. The Scottish and UK governments are going head-to-head in in court over gender reform laws. The legislation was passed by the Scottish Parliament last year, but then blocked by UK ministers over its potential impact and equality laws. The Scottish Government is seeking to overturn that decision with a legal challenge at the court of session. Lord Advocate Dorothy Bain argued for the Scottish Government, warned that if the UK Government was successful, Westminster could veto practically any act of the Scottish Parliament having an impact on reserve matters because they disagreed with it in policy grounds. She added that that would be tantamount to the Scottish Parliament being able to legislate only in so far as the UK executive consented. Ms Bain argued such an approach would contradict the overarching purpose of the Scotland Act. The UK government has argued that it's highly problematic to have two different gender recognition systems within the UK. So there's not been a decision yet. What do you think the chances are of, or how do you think the the outcomes likely to be, Brian? Uh, I have no idea. Um, we will. I, I think Lady Haldane said it's going to be weeks, possibly months, and um, before we get any uh, written outcome to this court case. The reading the kind of highlights, if we can call it highlights, from a court case because it's really difficult to follow court cases, particularly when you're following journalists who are in the room. It's really difficult to see what's actually going on. Um, and you know how these things are covered sometimes isn't the most accessible because you know laws about perception right and about how cases are put forward uh i mean it would not be uh, a surprise to anybody that i'm definitely the lady uh well team lord advocate um on this one um I, I, one of the key things i think with the case and and the arguments is that well, we're not looking to change anything to do with the the uh, 2010 equality act we're looking to update the 2004 gender recognition act um and and all that would be would be the process for changing um what your um what your birth certificate says you know a gender recognition certificate says so it's, it doesn't change anything it's just a different process to get what you can already get under the uk law right so to me i think that seems really really fundamental and what the lord advocate's saying is that yeah this just basically gives the the, the westminster government a blank check to veto anything right well, what are we already starting to see? <laughs> it's exactly what we're starting to see. Um, and it's just desperation uh, from from uh, the, the Tories in Westminster. You know, even minor things, minor things like introducing a deposit return scheme, you know, they can say, no, we're going to do this instead and you have to do that. And it's, you know, it's, it's starting to span into loads of different parts of policy, right? But to me, it just uh, it's just it goes totally against the the concept of devolution. Um, to you know, you can't have one thing that's different in another part of the UK, and it's like it's literally what devolution is, right? Um, and I know I know they hate it, but you know that's what devolution is, and you just have to get on with it. Um, and a lot of the the criticisms again, Lord Advocate, on the the UK government's arguments is very much like it sounds like a party political 
um, argument and approach to to their their legal challenge, which is not surprising because it is party political. Um, and if you think about, uh, you know, turning back to Holyrood, and, and I know we've had these discussions a lot, and it's important to say that most of the parties supported this, right? Most of the MSPs supported this, and and as a block, it was really only the, the Scottish Conservatives, right? So. This is very much a party political issue. Um, again, not being supported by the UK Labour Party at, at Westminster. So, you know, the usual story when it comes to anything remotely progressive or anything remotely more inclusive. Um, so I don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's always hard to kind of feel how, how these things are going. But surely, surely we can see the, the arguments of devolution being brought into sharp focus here and you know these type because as well because this is the, the section 35 is meant to be a last resort right so what was the other resorts that were were put in place before we got to the stage and the answer is nothing the collaboration with the the with you know the uk government actually collaborating with Holyrood on this is is almost non-existent right um so really that you know for them to to, to basically pull this lever and say right now we're going to block it is it is entirely party political. So I'm hoping that the, the outcome will be that it will be upheld in, in the, the Scottish government's case. Um, and I just don't think the, the Tories have really thought this one through as much. But again, I could be completely wrong and we could end up with some really bad news coming our way. And if that is really bad news about the concept of devolution, the next year is going to be an absolute nightmare when it comes to any bills being passed in Holyrood that the Tories don't like. And that in itself should be um, a, a huge turning point on the support for independence for, for a lot of people, just on this particular principle alone. But we, we shall see. Yeah. I think it's not whether the Tories like Bill or not. I think they don't like legislation being passed at all. <laughs> you know, it, it, it feels like it's Fair. everything that comes through, except for, you know, the fireworks ban or something. You know, I'm sure they had people... Uh, who didn't want that. I found it really interesting. The arguments ended early, right? Um, and as an American, I found it, I find legal court cases very difficult because there's just, there's nuanced differences. If if this was happening in America, I could break it down quite, I, I would have a much better idea. But I feel like Alistair Jack thought he was American when he used that veto because he used it like an American veto, right? Like you don't have to have a reason, a governor or a president can veto a law for absolutely no reason, for political reasons, for their mood. Um, but there's like two different things that conditions that have to be met or something. That's part of the argument. Um, the the UK lawyers will say, no, you just have to find one of these tiny things reasonable of all these excuses they gave. And the Lord Advocate saying, no, like, a lot of these are complete bullshit as, as the UK agrees, but it, it's not that you have to out overrule all of them. You, you get to a point where you're like, this is just a pile of bullshit and, and throw it in the trash. The thing that is the most depressing to me is that it doesn't matter what this outcome is. It's going to get appealed. So um, I think part of the delay of the, um, sorry, I'm getting the, I'm getting the people who's the judge's name what's the judge called lady haldane <laughs> okay i think part part of the reason for the length of lady haldane's opinion will be because of the four four women scotland appeal 
of the definition of what a woman is in the Equality Act. So that's being appealed in the courts. So I don't think they're necessarily waiting for that opinion, but if it's about to come out, it it may it will tip what it is. So like that's something to keep abreast of is if this this uh if it gets upheld that a woman legally can is a trans woman according to the Equality Act in the UK. Um which isn't to say that it's that the judge is biased one way or another. It makes sense to me that this would get easily overturned one way or the other, depending on that court case or greatly influenced. I think there's a higher court in Scotland it can go to before it even goes to the UK court. So we're looking at two more court cases. So, you know, it's it's great that they challenged it. It's necessary that they that the Scottish government challenged it. It is an attack on devolution. Um, and it's not going to be over for a long, long time, even after we get this opinion. So I'm looking at this as a marathon and not a sprint. And I just, you know, as a member of the SNP who is not, whose members have not historically been and some who are not currently uh, great defenders of trans rights, I have to appreciate the courage of Nicola Sturgeon and now Hamza Youssef of committing and taking this forward because the amount of political capital that has been spent by the SNP on this and the Scottish government is huge. It's, it's really huge. I think Labour spent a lot of political capital getting their MSPs to vote in favor, and they've decided that that's all they're spending on it. That's why they're not supporting it anymore. Um, because, you know, there was a recent poll that came out that shows that fewer people support trans rights now because of the moral panic, which I think my pinned tweet is, basic human rights should not be governed by public opinion. Um so this is this is the issue here. So um, while remaining critic, you know, I, I don't want to praise the Scottish government and the SP too much. I do want to praise the Greens for being rock solid on this. But then I'd also have to probably praise the Lib Dems, which I'm not going to do. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I think that this is a moral obligation that I'm I'm very proud to live in a country where the government is you know, committing to it and a party who's committing to it overall, even though we have a few naysayers who are trying to, very much to undo the the overall arch of things. Did that it's make sense? Of, I feel like I was rambling. Sorry. No, no, makes sense. It's part of uh, my depressing charm. I just, I kind of, kind of help but think it's going to come back in favour of Westminster. It just seems as if the legal framework is designed to always favour uh, the Westminster government and I mean this has got to do so much damage to devolution because it's not just a case of you know you know bills will get passed and then get vetoed at the last minute it effectively means Scottish governments have to take that into account before they even take up an issue so thinking right we, do we really need to, is this really worth pursuing spending like a couple of years on you know, God knows how many hours of work time and political capital when you know the Westminster government's going to shut it down anyway. So what it really means is Scottish governments will start self-censoring and they'll lower their ambition and only sort of try to put things through that they think the West government, Westminster government will let slide. And, and then it's really just a talking shop. You know, we don't really, it's not really 
a radical. There's no chance any kind of radical change can come out of Holyrood after that, unless we get independence. I I will say, as they attack devolution, that brings independence closer, right? Devolution's great. I'm a supporter of it, but I understand that beforehand there were independent supporters that didn't want it because devolution prolonged the union, right? That's the only reason they did it. Um, my my supervisor for my dissertation for my master's is, I don't want to give away too much information about him, but he's he's got really interesting insights on being from the former Yugoslavia and then moving to Canada and now living in Scotland. He has really, his expertise is in multinational states. And that's that's part of it is like devolution is a way forward, but it also delays a, like independent statehood. But as that is attacked by the central government, it will, you know, strengthen the separation. While it's not fun to live through that, that is my 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 silver lining to David's stormy cloud, I guess. <laughs> I can put um I can put the link to uh my supervisor's book um about multinational states. It's it's quite interesting if you are a huge politics nerd and like political theory. As as we all are. Well, uh, and uh, I do I do agree with you and I just I think that you know the the way devolution is is being attacked you know from even going back to to Brexit and the, the undermining of the Seoul convention and which these kind of things just seem like ages ago now but they're actually not that long ago in, in politics right so all these constant attacks that we've had really say since Brexit right that there is more <clears throat> excuse me um but then ironically to achieve independence we need the permission of the central government so and and, and as, as support continues to grow um will that change the central government's you know consent for us to to have a referendum i'm not particularly confident about that either um it's just and and the the, the saddest thing about this whole thing is the fact that this you know, is, is at the sharp end of, of this discussion, right? So it's going through, you know, that it's been blocked by the Section 35. It's going through court sessions. It's going to go through the other courts before before a final decision is made. And this is about basic human rights for trans people. And this depressing thing. So it's, you know, it's policy that is so important to such a small section of, the, of the, you know, of society and everyone's talking about it and talking over these people when all they want is just basic human rights, buried in dignity, have a, a gender recognition certificate, you know, and it's just so, so sad and, and, and just so frustrating that ultimately there's a huge constitutional battle being fought on the human rights of such a small uh, percentage of the population. It's just so, so frustrating. Before we move on, um, when you mentioned the deposit return scheme, you know, again, that just sums up the incompetency. You know, that's Westminster government, where they they insist, no, no, you can't bring in this recycling scheme. It has to be the same as the UK one we're bringing in next year. So you can't even good class, blah, blah. And then because that, all that hassle about that, and then turn around and go, I we're just, we're cancelling our deposit scheme. <laughs> and it's just like, when not too long ago, by a supermajority at Scottish Parliament, they extended the voting franchise. 
you know, that doesn't match. I can vote in Scottish and local elections. It's it's just insane. For now. Well, the Scottish Don't get used part, to it. It has royal assent already. <laughs> I have voted and will continue. <laughs> no, they changed the uh, permanent residency time frame. So I was supposed to be uh, eligible this month. And now I'm not. So, oh, well. But you're not getting rid of me yet. I still have plenty of time left on my visa. Good. Well, I also have to remember to take my ID with me when uh, mm -hmm. voting this by-election coming up, which will be a, a new experience. More barriers. I, vote, I always vote by mail, so. <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I'm a postal vote. See, I like Condren voting in person. Let's move on to our final topic. Diane Abbott has branded a Labour Party investigation and her comments about racism fraudulent. Ms Abbott said that she had been told by Labour whips who are in charge of party discipline there would be an investigation, but she claimed this was now in the hands of the Labour Party HQ and that no proper process had been undertaken in the four months since her suspension. If the whip remains suspended at the next election, she cannot stand as a Labour candidate. Ms Abbott is claiming that this is the outcome the party leadership has been seeking. She added that the Labour apparatus had installed its own handpicked personnel in her constituency, clearing the way to replace her as a candidate prior to the next election. Meanwhile, another MP, the SNP's Lisa Cameron, has said she can't entirely rule out forcing a by-election in her constituency if she is not nominated to stand again. Ms Cameron has represented East Kilbride Straven and Les Mahegel uh, since 2015, when she fell out with the party over its handling of an MP who was suspended for making sexual advances to a staff member, the SNP said it was for local members to choose their candidate in a ballot. Cat. I was going to say, I would I would really like to start with this. Um, there's been an update, first of all, to this. Uh, Lisa Cameron has now threatened legal action. Uh, I don't know why or how she would have grounds for legal action, but um, Hamza Youssef had, has said it's up to members, so... As annoying as that is sometimes when it comes to getting collective support for something, it is up to members, but it is the members who uh, didn't nominate her in the in the normal process. She had to use a secondary process to get her nomination. And she is a nominee, so there are two. But today, uh, L Linda Fabiani, who is a legend in the S&P, a living legend, I might add, um, has backed her opponent there's a lot of people coming out of the woodwork and to the claims that Lisa Cameron has made that this is about Patrick Grady and all of that, I will say she is vocally anti-choice, right? She's anti-abortion. She has uh, broken the, the SNP's policy of only voting on Scottish things to vote, to allow um, people to harass people trying to go to abortion clinics in England. That was in, 2020 maybe she also wrote a letter to Alistair Jack asking him to veto uh GRR so it's very disingenuous on her part and it I mean I guess it's politically savvy because there's been no pushback in the media to that I think mostly because her branch members the people who will be selecting her not her branch her constituency members already know all this and 
it doesn't need to be in the press, right? They don't want her as their nominee. And I don't know the guy who is, is challenging her, but I fully expect him to win the selection contest. And, you know, hopefully he's all right. <laughs> I'm sure he's better than she is. Um, it's just, I, I can't, I don't know Lisa Cameron. Maybe she's a nice person, but her politics are absolutely horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. And I can't wait till she returns to pub, uh, to, to private life, personally. Brian? Yeah, um, I think you've said everything that I was going to say, or more detail than I, I know about uh, Dr. Lisa Cameron. I think her politics are absolutely hyphen. And, um, Not MD, by the way. Not MD. No. Um, A psychiatrist, isn't she? No. Psychologist. Psychologist, sorry. Is she doctor, Dr. Lisa Cameron? She's not an MD. Yeah, yeah, she always says doctor. People who make a really big deal that they're a doctor and aren't. It, it's a weird thing with me. <laughs> if you, even if you do, you're a doctor, please don't put it on your bank card. Why? Anyway, that's a separate point. Yeah, but you, if, when you get your PhD, you definitely do, should, no. just because it's doctor friendly. Come on. I know. I, I know I should have a VW and I should have a little doctor's case and carry it around me a wee doctor's but, case book exactly yeah <laughs> i mean but i'm surprised she puts doctor because then that would might force her to put her pronouns on something oh heaven forbid um but yeah that's a separate point but yeah for for lisa cameron um yeah it, ultimately that's the end of the the matter is it's up to the constituency members to decide who they want. you know and, and people are really quick to um talk about you know the the threat of deselection and all these cover-ups and blah 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 so actually why don't we just let the members decide who represents them there's a few other constituencies that i'd like smp members to make a different decision with but you know this one is is, is one of them um and, and i do agree with you i think there's political savviness around um you know, particularly pinning the only thing being on about the, the Patrick Grady story. Um and it does kind of provide a bit of a shield um for, for, for media scrutiny. Um and ultimately it's up to the members on who they who they want to to uh, represent them. Um so that's all really I've got to say about that about Lisa. Um turning to Diane Abbott, um this is a really I mean, it's not surprising, um, but basically with Diane Abbott um, being a black woman and a left-wing politi uh, politician within the UK Labour Party, um, when she wrote the letter that she wrote to, I believe it was The Observer, was it The Observer? It was terrible. The, the letter was really, really bad. Um, but Diane Abbott really quickly apologised for it. it. It sort of insinuated that people who are um are you know gypsy Romani GRT um as a, you know uh, if they're Jewish then they, they they experience prejudice and it's only black people or people of color who can experience racism I don't think it was articulated very well it was really really offensive it was even comparing GRT people to ginger people so as a ginger person myself I do not believe that I experience, um, you know, the same prejudice and hate and racism that, that other people do. Um, 
so I mean the whole the whole letter was was absolutely horrendous. Um, Diana apologized. I think it was a few hours after the letter had been published, and she claimed that it wasn't her final draft. I don't really know how you go from that as a first draft to something that is um positive. But that aside, um, she apologized for it and and we moved on. And there's another example in the Labour Party. I think it was, it was Neil Coyle, who's the now again the Labour MP for. Bermondsey in London and he racially abused a journalist in Westminster in Strangers Bar um, and he obviously had a, a full investigation and after having the whip removed was reinstated to the Labour Party um, he did not have his case centralised to the Labour HQ um, and to be honest when this situation happened with Diana, but I think this really fell into the lap of the the, the central office uh, within the Labour Party. I, I, you know, Diane Abbott in general is very critical of Keir Starmer and everyone who surrounds him, rightly so. Um, and this was an opportunity. It's like they, they don't want to miss. Uh, the accusations are that obviously it's it's been the the whole. Uh, disciplinary process is a sham it's been controlled um, by, by the central office and ultimately she believes it so she's kept out of the way so the Labour Party can select a new candidate and she will not be a Labour MP or, or be represented in Parliament after the next general election and I'm not surprised to hear it at all there's examples of this happening right across the Labour Party from Metro Mayor in the North East, Jamie Driscoll to local councillors um, you know, right across the the political sort of the tiers of government across the the devolution settlements in in England, um. So this is not at all surprising, and it's just it's so naked and it's obvious, but I just don't feel that that it's being challenged uh, again by the mainstream media or or being discussed openly because it's obvious what's happening, right? Um and. And in a sense that Diane Abbott probably will not be the Labour candidate and very unlikely to be in Parliament after the next general election. And that is basically being set up by design, uh, by, by basically central office controlling this sham of a, a disciplinary hearing. Yeah, it's the double standards are all over the place. Um, you know, and Diane Abbott has always been held to like a different standard. You know, it was now six years ago that she misspoke some numbers in an interview and it still gets thrown yeah. up. It still comes up all the time. Whereas um, Liz Truss crashed, nearly crashed the UK economy and a year later she's like making speeches about the economic um, policy in the UK and it's like she's we're being told we should be treating her seriously and it's... Um, Theresa May has got like cover articles saying she spoke which I don't... Yeah. <laughs> like shut up <laughs> yeah the woman that invented the oh, I forgot the name of it the racist go home hostile, yeah. hostile environment is now that's how far right you can be and still be called woke um, but yeah, yeah we I was gotta come to up with a new word <laughs> I was gonna mention Neil Coyle as well there's also Rosie Duffield that's openly transphobic and, yeah. but she doesn't challenge the leadership so that's fine Um. Referring back to Lisa Cameron, um, I read that an interview with her, which was so sympathetic towards her, and she was talking about how she feels ostracised, that she's her mental health is suffering. 
I don't quite get that. Why she? So she's saying that if she was saying that's why she's resigning, because she can't stand it. But she's threatened to resign if she's not allowed to stay in the job. So, so it's like, well, on the one hand, you're saying it, it's a terrible place, it's toxic, you've been treated badly, and you can barely stand it. And in the next breath, you're saying, I want, I want to keep doing this job, but I'm going to cause absolute chaos if, um, if I'm not allowed to, if I have to face basic democracy within within the, the SNP. You know, it's, it's, it's a nonsense. It's quite difficult to, to challenge an incumbent, you know, uh, for somebody who's not a local councillor, who doesn't already have a public platform. It, it's quite difficult to win a contest like that. So acting like she's being persecuted um, and also taking the decision to go the alternate route to a nomination and not the straightforward sit in front of the committee and answer question, the nomination committee. It's just very odd. Um, but going pivoting to Diane Abbott, because I didn't mention her before because I'm so mad about Lisa Cameron. <laughs> um, it, it's really sad. It's really it makes me really angry that this is a black woman and this is how much power black woman has against the white supremacist patriarchal system. Right. Because it is not just the labor hierarchy, not just the top office. They're making a calculated decision that their members and the public won't care enough to stand up for her where Neil Coyle and these other people, they don't want to enrage people. Rosie Duffield, they don't want to enrage their supporters. So they're saying that. It shows that Diane Abbott, despite being, was she the first black and female MP ever? Yeah. Yeah. Just the lack of respect. Like you should be able, the mistake that she made pales in comparison. And, and it's almost not that her letter was accurate, but she was trying to talk about how bad it was for black people and, and they're proving the point. And it doesn't seem like many people care. And it's just, that's the worst thing about it to me. And again, the double standards, can you imagine? It? Because you were talking with the different people, Brian, that's been expelled or, for, or, or forced not to stand. A huge percentage of them are ethnic minorities, a disproportionate amount. Can you imagine if Jeremy Corbyn was using this kind of authoritarian, I don't think I said that right, but you know what I mean, these tactics to, you know, crush the opposition, and they happen to all a high proportion of a certain uh, ethnicity, the, the the entire UK media ecosystem would be in fire with claims of racism uh, um, and attacking them constantly day in, day out. Keir Starmer just gets a pass because because he's a right-wing... Uh, can't think of an acceptable word to use. He's part because, of their club. He's yeah, one of them. He, he's, a, he's in the club, and it's it, it just shows what a mockery the whole... British democracy and British uh, press is. It's a joke. You know, there's a lot of parallels between what's happening to Cor uh, what happened to Corbyn, what's happening to Diana Abbott now. Both of them represented their constituency for decades. Both of them beloved in their, their constituency by all reports. They've got massive uh, majorities, um, which they's, they have increased uh, over and over, even when it was against the kind of national trends for their party. And yet they people don't get to decide now if they want to keep them as an MP. No, even the people when uh, const their constitu constituency party are allowed to decide. Keir Starmer doesn't like them, so 40 years of service just gets thrown in the bin. 
I, I don't have the words of how low I can I, I hold Keir Starmer. You know, he's just he's the worst. And the it's really upsetting that the Tories heading to a car crash defeat is offset by the fact that this absolute charlatan and liar and con man is going to be the one that replaces him. It's really hard to take any joy in the Tories' defeat knowing that this absolute shower are waiting in the wings to take over. That's um, that's that's another upbeat finish for me. I really thought that there was more of a a that the left, that workers, that unionized workers had more power in this this country on this island coming from America where McCarthyism really, really set us back. And, you know, the, the left in America is in its infant stages, really. It's not a political powerhouse and still quite a lot of um, fringe thinking. And, and it, it has a lot of maturing to do, I would say. Um, it's just, I always thought before I moved here, I'd be a labor supporter. And I'm definitely not. It's just what a disappointing party. What a disappointing system of government. Why why are we in this? How can anybody sorry, I was out in Rutherglen campaigning a few weeks ago and the the number of labor supporting labor voting independent supporters just blows my mind. I just don't get it. It's just really disappointing and infuriating. Yeah, I think I think it's always more frustrating because there is like you know there is some individuals within the Labour Party that you know, there's some really inspiring like you know councillors and um across the UK and some great campaigners and and some fantastic MPs, um and and the Labour Party and it's just why are you still there, why, you know because Labour is is you know amongst one of the biggest disappointments I think and and. UK politics and especially how it's how it's manifesting and representing itself at the moment you know there, there are so many examples I can give you of different instances that have happened particularly with MPs of of colour there's um, Absinna Begum as well who was um, treated absolutely appallingly who had uh, faced uh, domestic abuse and had basically taken time off uh, from from work and was never you know given any support or or publicly um recognized uh, by Keir Starmer um you know and, and was having to deal with these situations and and was essentially um facing um deselection as well and there is so many examples of of how since Keir Starmer has taken over the Labour Party and it's so obvious and it's so calculated and and it's true what you're saying. Like if Jeremy Corbyn had tried to do something similar to this to a, another faction of the Labour Party, it would have been front page news, and it would have been relentless, absolutely relentless. He was called um, a Stalinist for trying yeah. to have a reshuffle. I keep saying that, but when you look at what Starmer's doing, and then consistently look at the reaction, I mean, a, a cabinet reshuffle is just a normal part of a party leader's, you know, job. That's what they do. But like because he moved one extremely critical voice out of the, his own shadow cabinet. Um, you know, suddenly he was akin to Stalin. It was, it's, it's, if it wasn't so upsetting, it would be laughable. Yeah. And we should laugh because the media is a joke in this country. Yeah, I completely agree. And what a nice positive note to finish on. Yeah, I've done it again, haven't I? 
David, stop doing this. There's got to be something fun to end on. There has to be. Mm. Anybody? I don't know. (laughs) You you killed every positive thought on the way. This episode will be called There Is Nothing Fun. There is nothing fun to talk about right now because everything is shit. Everything is shit. That could be the name of every episode. That could be the name of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've come up with a name for this one, haven't we? Mm-mm. Sorry, guys. I, I think I think next time we need to make sure that we've got a positive note to finish on because there is something always always positive to talk about, really. You know, it, you know it's Kylie Minogue's new album now. Drag Race UK starts you know in a couple of days time things are good did you not want to talk about pumpkin spice right this was something that oh, was yeah. put in the chat right and i think all artificial tastes in coffee are shit well pumpkin spice is really like a combination of cinnamon and mm. all spice and nutmeg or whatever i think it's crap i don't like pumpkin spice anything i like mm. hot apple cider that is the flavor of autumn it's pure. It's wonderful. Where I'm from, they make um, apple cider donuts. That they're usually like little donut holes, and they'll fry them fresh right there at a harvest festival, where you go get pumpkins, and you're in the leaves, and you have your hot apple cider, which is non-alcoholic and cloudy, and you know, usually. I mean, I worked at a like an apple orchard. It's not a state that's too fancy we're on a farm that had a restaurant and a harvest festival all at the same time and you just kind of freeze with your loved ones and sip hot apple cider and eat some apple cider donuts fresh in a little paper bag when you talk to an american about halloween it feels like we're in the set of hocus pocus like does this whole stuff actually happen oh yeah there was like multiple places within you know 10 miles of of where i grew up where where that was just part of the culture. I, yeah, you, I don't know. Here you, you just have it's B&M. also Thanksgiving. You just have B and M full of Halloween decorations, and then maybe like a sad looking pumpkin somewhere that someone's carved out and left outside. I, th- I think it was last year was the first time since and like I've been in this house since twenty fifteen. Last year was the first time a child came to the only trick or treat. And because I was so used to nobody ever coming, I had to give them like loose change or something. Like, there you <laughs> go. Well, at least it wasn't like floss or an apple. <laughs> um, I So Erin, that does the Talking Sentence podcast with me, is Canadian. And she was like, you know, we could really, like, that's not what either of us want to do with our lives. But there really is room for autumn harvest festivals in Scotland that they could really make a go of it. Like tractor rides. Like, it's really amazing. I think it's because the things are all like done like you can pick your pumpkins out of the field so farmers are addicted to working (laughs) they just get hay bales and take the neighbors around and it grew from there it's not even really a halloween thing it's it's a harvest time thing is it it's not part of your area of america that do the deep fried butter is it no i mean i i I don't know whereabouts that is i heard about it and it's like i think i don't think in the history have a Scottish person ever heard of a meal or, or a food and went, that sounds a bit too unhealthy. I it mean, deep fried, deep fried butter. I mean, God almighty. I mean, butter is definitely my part of America, right? That's it's why I was wondering if the deep fried but Maybe it's so more Why would you deep fry it? You put it on everything and in everything. 
Although I messaged you recently because I found that, that that's not always the case in all parts of America. It's mayo instead is like a substitute for butter. Oh, most people don't butter sandwiches. Uh, my my partner thought my family was weird because my, my Nana was like, oh, you want a sandwich? Do you want a ham sandwich? What would you like on it? Butter or mayo? Or he's like, mustard, please. Like he goes, who offers to put butter on a sandwich? I'm like, that is family like does. Is that not what the primary purpose of butter? I don't. I mean, what what else would you use I, butter for? But um, you know, on toast, main, main, I guess mainstream. butter and lunch meat seems a bit much. But so does mayonnaise to me. So I don't like that either. <laughs> I I don't know. It's just one of those things. I had my mind blown recently when I when I heard somebody say that. Yeah. So my family does butter sandwiches. So. Like, like normal human beings. <laughs> yeah, I get. I've never thought of my family as normal human beings, but I guess so. <laughs> they'll be pleased to know. Yeah, butter your sandwiches. My my eight year old doesn't like butter on her sandwich. She just likes it dry, but she is a weirdo. So I like makes mustard. sense. I don't like mustard at all on my sandwiches. But see, if I was putting another sauce on a sandwich, I would still put the butter on. Mm. Yeah, like I would still put like butter and then like mayonnaise on one half or something if you had mayonnaise in the sandwich. I don't understand chip sandwiches where you put chip chips butties. in a bun. Yeah. Why not? I don't... What? Because it's so much starch. Like why? Why would you Obviously. need to put those two things together? Because it tastes amazing. I don't think it does. It it just feels like oh, I can't get through it. Maybe I'm not putting enough butter on it. I only, <laughs> found... Liber- <laughs> I only found out recently that um, I've heard of Sloppy Joes like in American mm. films and stuff, but it's basically a Roman mince. I'll have to try a, a, Ro- a Roman mince. Like the Romans, like the Roman things that men, <laughs> men think about the Roman Empire. <laughs> so, right. That's that's very true, by the way. Is it? I think of the Roman Empire a lot. No, it must not be a queer thing then. So. I guess, yeah. A, a hetero thing. It mm. was the article was about women asking their partners, and it was Thanks. some people were like three times a day. Like <laughs> what? It sort of just rumbles around in the background. The only thing for me, it's yes. never far away. I, that that I find that fascinating. But another thing, I just want to come back to the chip butty. Is that chip butty with cheese is nice. Che- cheese added to anything improves. Exactly. Right. Of course it does. I mean, and especially with the almost, I mean, you know, short of ice cream or something like that. Yeah. So I'd rather have poutine. Like the chips with cheese and gravy. I'd rather have that. That's a good night. So, I mean, so do you I, s- I just do think you- that the bun is superfluous. Why I don't need that much. Oh, we stick everything in a bun, like the, the scotch yeah. pie. That's the, the thing. I, I, I must admit, I always find the rolling pie a bit of a strange thing. Yeah, but it's convenient. It does soak up the the grease, I suppose. Mm-hmm. It keeps everything I'm going to have to look up Roman mints and, and see if I can find it, and I'll let you know if it's like Sloppy Joe. I said rolling mints, not Roman mints, by the way. Rolling? Roll and mints on a roll. Oh, oh no, like mince and tatties. Mince is not like sloppy joe. No, that's that's what it looked like. It tastes different. I want to know what Roman mince is, though. (laughs) That's why I was like Roman, like Roman Empire. 
<laughs> I wish, I, I wish I Wyndham Howe were getting there. This is definitely the name of the podcast now, and I think we should stop now because I think people are probably Roman laughing Mince. now. Roman, Roman Mince. Mince. <laughs> so, uh, just for just does that mean you don't have like, a favourite Roman Empire uh, Emperor? No, why would I? No. Emperors are bad. I, I always liked the... You know, I mean, classical studies in general was always quite camp to me because, you know, I had all these goddesses and, and whatever. And I always liked Athena looked pretty cool, so I liked her. But she's not an emperor. Exactly, because she didn't... Well, she, she might have killed people. You never know, do you? And you never know these goddesses. But, um, yeah, like it's... I don't really care about emperors. No. Who's your favorite emperor, David? Thank you for asking. Vespasian. <laughs> built built the Colosseum. He built the Colosseum. One of the few emperors that successfully managed to transfer it to his son. This is a oh. fascinating insight into a straight white cis man. And it's thing. ironic because the Roman Empire was queer as fuck. So it's like, you know. Well, well, but not well, as Greek, much as the Greeks. The Greeks sort of invented it, but the Romans, I would say, perfected it. Well, there you go. So it's just, I always find it interesting. Right. Well, it's cool because we're talking about absolute mince. But it's great. Roman mince. <laughs> yes. You can find all of our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles and you can sign up for a free newsletter. Um, you can also catch the Talking Sense podcast with Kat and Erin. And if there's anything you want us to talk about on uh, Hollywood, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood ungagged, or send us an email ungaggedleft at gmail.com putting Hollywood ungagged in the subject line um, you can also join our Signal community if you want to get in touch with that any through any of our social media uh, channels and if you enjoyed this please give us five stars on whatever podcast platform you use until then have fun, be good and be lucky bye bye bye, bye. Yeah.